If you've been with us for the last uh, number of weeks, you know that we're in a sermon series um, about wholeheartedness. It's uh, give us an undivided heart. We're just simply talking through different passages and stories that relate to this theme. Uh, When the Bible talks about purity, often what is being related is uh, a pure heart, uh, an undivided heart, a heart that has um, one loyalty, one desire, one aim and ambition, um, and and not divided. So we're talking about ways that we see this picture and this path in Scripture. And so this... um, Obviously, as I thought about this uh, this passage and an undivided heart, I think it would be no surprise that I thought of Harry Potter. Um, we as a family are reading through the Harry Potter series, and we're in that sticky place where are the kids old enough for us to go on? We don't know. There's a little bit of conflict there. But uh, but we're through book three. We've started on book four. And, uh, and Harry Potter, as far as we've read, is awesome. Harry Potter is a really important wizard, if you didn't know. He is really uh, a major player in the whole world peace thing going on in the wizarding world. Harry Potter, by his exploits, has almost single-handedly put down the, the plot of the evil he who must not be named a number of times already, and he's not even 14. Harry Potter is really brave. He is really good at magic. He is one of the best at Quidditch ever for his age. Okay? He's a really big deal. Everybody knows his name. But every summer, Harry Potter has to go live with the Dursleys, who do not know that Harry Potter is a big deal, who don't know that he's really important. You see, the wizarding world, the world, the magic world, has done a really good job of hiding themselves from the non-magical world. And so they don't even know that Harry's courage and his uh, insightfulness and his abilities have actually preserved them, the Dursleys, from evil. Already at this point, they don't even know it. They don't know that his work has directly benefited them. And so the Dursleys at best ignore Harry, but at worst they work directly towards his misery all the time. They, don't, they, they want to just uh, keep him under their heel. The Dursleys, really, it's, it seems pretty clear that they hate Harry Potter. Our passage today is about living with the Dursleys. It's about being people who are, uh, who are filled with power, who are really important, who, people who are, are a part of destroying the works of evil in this world but we live with the Dursleys. We live in a world where it's uh, much more acceptable to gossip about who bought what car. And, and like the Dursleys are, are really just, uh, just enveloped in the new shows on TV or the new video games. And that kind of, that kind of engagement uh, can rot us out from the inside, corrodes, uh, and if Harry Potter in, uh, engages in that, It corrodes him from the inside, and he will lose his position. He would lose his understanding of what he is to do in this world, where he is headed as the the chosen child who will defeat evil in the form of Voldemort. 
I would think it's crystal clear how our passage relates to that theme in Harry Potter, but just in case it's not, we'll keep talking. This passage is one of the classic passages um, of the ancient Christian doctrine of the beatific vision. You see, at the end of our passage where, uh, where, where, uh, where John the Apostle says, uh, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is an ancient Christian hope that one day God would, uh, would when, when, when he returns, when he reveals himself, as the passage says, that we'll get to see him face to face. And in that encounter, in that encounter, Every crack and corner of our aching, longing, divided hearts will be filled, completed, and made perfect. Jonathan Edwards calls this that happifying vision. That happifying vision. It's a vision that makes you so completely happy that you're then wholehearted, pure-hearted, undivided in your essence and being. When we were painting, uh, or actually getting ready to paint this house, there was a, a lot of prep work to do, and, if, uh, and, and this was all, it was a house that was painted with lead-based paint, so only a few people could do the prep work, and all the other uh, younger folks or uh, ladies who may uh, be pregnant, unbeknownst to them or anybody else. I don't say there were any pregnant ladies on the job site, but just in case, you've got to take these precautions, right? They all had to be away from all this scraping and stuff. But when you scrape um, and, you, and you get all the loose paint from, from lead-based paint, it actually chips in squares. If you've seen this, it makes all these like right angles and squares and blocks. And so what you're left with is some of that paint holds on, but then some of it in these kind of deeper crevices are left that, that have the naked wood. But it's so nice when you take that bucket of paint and you just get a, just load up that brush, and it's almost like you're spreading butter over that house. You just spread it on, and it just fills in all the cracks and cracks. It's so gratifying. There is no more crack or crevice. There's no more miscolored. It's all just clean and beautiful, and it fills in every crevice of that house. That is this beatific vision. It's like spreading butter over your heart. Our hearts are cracked. Our hearts have holes in them. Our hearts are, are, are shattered. But this beatific vision, this vision of all of God, is, going, is so beautiful and astoundingly glorious that it will, it will wipe over every crack and incompleteness and hurting and unfulfilled longing and every desire will be met and will fill your heart up to the very corners. That happifying vision. Do you see this? Uh, and, and even saying that, there is this major distinction of Christianity that is declared in that moment. That Orthodox Christianity has always proclaimed, uh, in, in, in accordance with Scripture, that happifying or change or completeness has to come from outside of us. It's not something that we find in ourselves. My family and I watched a very important film not long ago. It was the capstone in a trilogy of very important films that have very mature themes. We had to spend time discussing them afterwards uh, because it's not all as simple and wonderful as it seems in Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> Which is a great movie, by the way. 
J.D. Uh, Bell is not here, but he is the one that really pushed me into watching this movie. He loved it. Kung Fu Panda 3. It's an entire trilogy of animated Kung Fu Panda action devoted wholly to this idea that if you can only look inside yourself, then you will discover a sparklingly special, unique, and powerful individual. And you must clear the roadblocks to that individual finding its way out into the world so that you too can become a kung fu master dragon warrior to to deliver the valley from all evil and find the secrets of chi. That was the third one. Pretty, pretty amazing. That's the story of our world right now, though, that, that your completeness as a person is really bound up inside of you, and you're tying it down. And what you really need are the right people and the courage to bring it out. My kids and I watch the, even the extras from this movie. You know, they're like little short extras, and they just do things like, oh, in this scene, we wanted to show that Poe once again had to dig deep inside of himself and find his true nature, and when he released that, he had even more power, but we had to cut it because we had 84 other scenes that said the same thing earlier in the movie. Even in the extras that just came out again and again, if you're true to yourself, if you find yourself, if you, if you can express what you are, do you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like a massive burden. That sounds like something that's too hard to carry for, for me. You know how you know if something is really good news? Here's a really good test. How does it play with the poor in spirit? How does it play with the materially poor? Does this message play when somebody who is, who is vastly lonely and feels completely powerless in this world, does this message play? Does it work? How about the person who has been so misused in their life that they are, they are shattered? on the inside and can have no concept, no imagination that there might be somebody beautiful inside of them. You see, that's the difference in Christianity and what the world has to offer, that Christianity is great news for the weakest. It's good news for the strong, but it is great news for the weak and the powerless. Kung Fu Panda is good news for the powerful. It's good news for the highly affirmed among us. It's not good news for those who are poor in spirit. Completeness can't come from inside of you. But you know what? The religious among us are really not all that much different. You see, religious people really want to find completeness. They want to find expression and wholeness and happiness from inside of ourselves too. Religious people just decide to use God to do it instead of their inner person. Or do they? I was, uh, uh, after my freshman year of college, uh, Rachel and I just happened to intern for the same youth ministry at our home church. That was the summer that I fell in love with Rachel. She did not fall in love with me. Fairly painful. She was kissing this whole other set of lips. He was the other intern. That's right. <laughs> so, 
in this summer. But, you know, I, I won, right? That's good. It was a summer that I fell in love with Rachel, but we, uh, we took a, uh, a trip, a service trip. And, we, and Rachel and I recruited one of our good friends, Justin, to go along. He had no kind of, not much youth experience, but we said, hey, you should come with us. It'll be awesome. And so we did, we had this really hard, great, grueling week with junior high kids. And on the last day, uh, Justin and I happened to be sitting with our pastor, our youth pastor, Bradley, on the trip home. And Justin says to Bradley, hey, I'm kind of new at this. Like, this was my first time to do this. What do you, um, what are things, what did I do wrong? What things, where did I miss it? What things could I do better? How could I, how could I get better at this youth thing? And Bradley just, uh, Bradley said, Justin, what makes you think that that's going to grow you if I tell you all those things? What makes you think that's the path? And he kind of turned and got into another conversation and then left it at that. And I was, I've been confused about that for a long time. I always wondered, I trust Bradley, why did he say that to Justin? It seemed like a humble move. Right, that, that Justin was coming to him in humility, help me grow, help me change. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it made a lot more sense when I heard this. Uh, w- uh, what Dallas Willard said. Dallas Willard is a, um, a wonderful pastor and theologian who's now uh, dead, but he's been a major influence on Eric and a growing influence on me. Um, he said simply this. Uh, he said, "Guilt is not." compatible with the spiritual life. Guilt is not compatible with the spiritual life. I think what Bradley was saying to Justin is the the way you're going to grow is not to find the problems and then decide on the command to follow, the wisdom to be absorbed, or the promises to claim so that you can then live better. You're not going to find this power inside of yourself to change yourself and become the person you think you ought to be. You're not going to drum up the ability to actually change in these ways. Guilt is incompatible with the spiritual life. This self-motivated, I'm going to do it better next time guilt. Scripture calls that guilt, worldly guilt that leads to death. It's self-focused and self-based. That somehow change is going to come from my effort. And I'm going to fill in all the cracks and crevices of my heart. By my own effort. The irreligious want to find the sparkling person inside of them, but the religious want to, to beat up the person and, 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 uh, and find new effort and exertions of will to find this completeness, to find this happiness. What's God's way to do it? What is it that will complete me? It's a relational, a relational encounter with the being of God. This is a book I've, uh, I've been reading for a little while now. It's called Till We Have Faces. It's a novel by C.S. Lewis. Um, Rachel read it first, and I thought that was a good idea, so I thought I'd read it. Um, it is a, it's a myth retold. It's the myth of Psyche and Cupid. Uh, Psyche has uh, two other sisters. The god Cupid chooses her for a wife. He won't let her see his face. He only comes to her in the cover of darkness, but she is completely happy and content as his bride. Uh, The other sisters are envious. 
um, and one sister travels to Psyche and, try, and attempts to convince her this is not what it seems. Anybody, any, any groom who won't show his face has something to hide. You need to find out who this is. Um, and she gives her a candle and a clay pot to hold the candle. And, when, and then the cover of night when her husband comes, uh, Psyche is then to open the pot so the, so the light would reveal the face of her husband. Psyche does what her sister asks, and the god Cupid um, rages. There's a flood in the, in the mountain where, uh, where, where he lives with Psyche. There's, uh, rocks are torn apart, trees are torn down. Um, and, uh, and the sister who stays to, to, to watch what will happen sees this. There came as if it were a lightning that endured. That is, the look of it was the look of lightning, pale, dazzling, without warmth or comfort, showing each smallest thing with fierce distinctness, but it did not go away. This great light stood over me as still as a candle, burning in a curtained and shuttered room. In the center of the light was something like a man. It is strange that I cannot tell you its size. Its face was far above me, yet memory does not show the shape as a giant's. And I do not know whether it stood or seemed to stand on the far side of the water, or on the water itself. Though this light stood motionless, my glimpse of the face was as swift as a true flash of lightning. I could not bear it for longer. Not my eyes only, but my heart and blood and very brain were too weak for that. A monster would have subdued me less than the beauty this face wore. What C.S. Lewis often does, he puts just amazing picture in our mind of what it would be like to encounter deity, something so far above our mortal and finite form. And it almost undoes us. It says, not only my eyes, but my heart couldn't take even looking at this awesome beauty. I couldn't even take it. I love what happens next in the story. See, this daughter is is a princess, and the king is a fierce and ill-tempered man who is cruel. He is an awful king. But he sends for her and her companion, the fox. A few days later, the king sent for the fox and me again to the pillow room. As soon as he saw me veiled, she was wearing a veil at this time. He shouted, now, girl, what's this? Hung your curtains up, eh? Were you afraid we'd be dazzled by your beauty? Take off that frippery. It was then I first found what that night on the mountain had done for me. No one who had seen and heard the God could much fear this roaring king. It's hard if I'm to be scolded both for my face and for hiding it, said I, putting no hand to the veil. Come here, he said, not at all allowed this time. I went up and stood so close to his chair that my knees almost touched his, still as stone. To see his face while he could not see mine seemed to give me a kind of power. He was working himself into one of those white rages. Do you Begin to set your wits against mine, he said, almost in a whisper. Yes, said I, no louder than he, but very clearly. I had not known a moment before what I would do or say. That one little word came out of itself. He stared at me while you could count seven, and I half thought he might stab me to death. He never struck me again, and I never feared him again. And from that day... I never gave back an inch before him. Rather, I pressed on. 
you see what a vision of the deity did for this daughter, this princess. That a king that she feared, she was terrified of and would cower before previously, was, was nothing. Who could fear this roaring king when you had seen the face of that God? She found herself in the, in the right space in the world. She knew who she was in this world when she saw that beauty that she could barely behold. That beauty she could barely behold. This is, this is part of what it means to have the beatific vision. But it's not enough to know about God. That can give you courage maybe, but as Scripture says, that even the demons know about God and shudder. What we need is to know God, all of God, for me. All of Him, all of that beauty, for me. How does beauty and glory complete me? How does that actually work that if I encounter that terrible and awesome beauty, that glory, that wonder, that is the face of God and all of His being, how does that actually fill me in, pave me over, and complete me? There's a movie that came out a number of years ago starring Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt called As Good As It Gets. And it's, a, it's an older movie, but I thought of it because of the tagline from this movie um, that uh, is, you make me want to be a better man. Do you guys remember that? Do you remember this movie? It's a story of, this, uh, of Jack Nicholson as an obsessive compulsive disorder. He suffers. He's got to obey all his compulsions, and it's really isolated him in all his life. No one can stand to be around him. In fact, he goes to the same diner every day, orders the same thing, does the same routine, and Helen Hunt is the only server in the whole joint who can continue to serve him and work with him because he's so infuriating to everybody else. Now, as the story unfolds, they develop a relationship and become more and more intimately acquainted. And that, um, that is the statement that he makes to her. It's a declaration of his love for her. You make me want to be a better man. I never understood that, really. I didn't get it. I think I watched this as a young like high schooler. I didn't really get that. How that what, what does that mean? How is that a compliment? I think he's declaring there how beauty operates. You see, he has encountered beauty. He's encountered this gracious woman who continues to serve him despite his foibles and eccentricities and his, his downright meanness. And she continues to love him and serve him and care for him. She encounters, he encounters beauty in the face of Helen Hunt, and his heart is drawn into it. You see, that's the beauty, the way beauty works. It's magnetizing. True beauty like that draws us in. It envelops us and begins to change us, sometimes whether we want or not. That, that is a small picture of how the beauty of seeing the face of God transforms you and me, can change us. It pulls us in magnetically. It pulls us in. So that's great that one day that I'm going to see that and all of my heart will be pasted over and cleaned out and filled in all the way to the cracks and crevices and corners. That's wonderful that that will happen one day. But what does this passage mean when it says that all who have this hope that we will be pure as he is pure when we see him, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What does that mean that right now that can actually start to work backwards onto me today and I can become a whole, more and more wholehearted individual? 
One of my first jobs out of college, it was my first job out of college, um, was working in Boston for a deacon in our church um, whose name was Joe Buckley. And Joe Buckley was a New Englander through and through, which means basically he never said anything nice and he mumbled a lot. And I could hardly understand him. I was only, I was Joe Buckley's only employee. So no, we don't have a name for the company, Corby. And he greeted me with this every morning. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Meh. Meh. Mm. Mm. All right. And my first lunch with Joe Buckley, we were on a house painting job. I sat down with him. We opened our lunches together. I was sitting there with him, talking to him about his, you know, where he comes from. He's got brothers and sisters. Uh, how he got into construction, just trying to get to know him. He goes, oh, good. Oh, oh, man. Oh. Uh, what? Oh, I'm trying to eat my lunch here. Come on. It's lunch hour. What are you doing with all the questions? Let's just uh, take it easy. Okay, just settle down. We weren't supposed to talk at lunch, I learned, with Joe Buckley. I was a dude's only employee for an entire year, and I wasn't really allowed to talk to him all that much. And here I was, this like, like soft southern boy whose very uh, food and drink was positive reinforcement, and he gave none of it. Early on, Joe, we walked into this house he'd been working on. I wasn't there earlier in the job. I'd just come on. He was finishing up. And we walk in, and, you know, I'm kind of like a little Labrador puppy, like, what do I do? What do you want? I'll help. I'm, I'm helpful. I can do it. Hey, Joe, call me. Got a sponge in the wall over there. What? Hold on. What? Okay, what? Get a sponge in the wall under the plastic. All right, you have to realize that I did not grow up, I mean, I didn't grow up speaking Joe Buckley. But more than that, I didn't grow up knowing how to do any of these projects. It wasn't like part of the home I grew up in. I'd, I didn't know what a sponge had to do with plaster. How does that work? I mean, so that was the words, if you couldn't distinguish, those were two of the words he said to me. Get a sponge, get a little plaster. So I'd, I probably would have eventually gotten the sponge wet. Because sponges hold water, and I know that. But I would not have any idea how that interacted with a wall. I said, Joe, I'm, what do you want? What? What is it? What do you want me to do? Kobe, you grab the sponge and you get it wet. And then you smooth the plaster where I patched it. Okay, so that's called wet sanding. And I didn't know that process existed. You can get a sponge wet and sand uh, and like move it over like sandpaper and it smooths it out. That was great. Now I knew. Then I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew the end product. Let's get a smooth wall. Good. Okay, the smooth, I had no, no idea what the end product was. I just knew there was a sponge involved. Once I knew the end product, I could actually go about accomplishing the task. And I think that's actually a lot like our journey with Jesus. A lot of us don't know the end product. We just know the tools involved. There's this Bible thing. There's this church thing. Uh, there's a prayer thing. But we have no idea how to use them or what they're for or what we're actually doing here. But this passage tells us that when, when we see him face to face, we will be like him. We will be like him. We will be pure in heart. All of our conflicting desires will be expelled. We will have one driving desire to love God and love our neighbors. All of our painful longings will be fulfilled finally and fully. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. Do you know why that matters? 
Why does it matter that you know where you're headed, what your ideal, what your true, what your self will be? That's because everyone, every time you make a decision, you're deciding who you are in the future. Psychologists call this the ideal self. Right, Michael? We're reading this book together, Michael Warren and I. Your ideal self. You're projecting it into the future. Have you ever made a decision? You're like, yeah, that could be a really good fit of a job, or that could, I could really, that, that, that could be a really good roommate for me, or yeah, that's definitely the right major for me. That's going to be a good one. Or, or no, I'll pick up that new hobby. I think that I'll be really, really good at that. And then you get there, and it's an absolute disaster. Like you realize that you are not equipped for this job at all, and then in fact you hate it. Or, the, or this, this hobby is like not in keeping with your personality or abilities in any way, and you're just embarrassing yourself and frustrating yourself all the time. That's because you took your ideal self and you said, and you placed that, that version of you in the future and said, oh yeah, that version of me will like that job. I want to be patient. I want to care about people. I really want to do excellent work, even if it's not exciting to me. I want that to be true of me. I bet I'll be, I could do that job. So, you know, whoever it is, Dan Tooney in three months, he would love that job. I'm going to take it right now, right? That's how we make decisions. It goes all the way to, what are you eating after this? Well, Corby in, in 30 minutes is going to be ravenously hungry and really grumpy. Will I want Hardee's or will I want Mexican food? Well, Corby in 15 minutes will be really hungry, and, and I'd really like those fries. I bet Corby in 15 minutes will really want those curly fries at Hardee's. They're an upcharge, but they're worth it. I'm going to get those. We all, in every decision, we project ourselves into the future and make a decision based on our future self. Does that make sense? So do you think it would be helpful to have a really good and accurate vision of our future self? So Paul is saying that whoever hopes in him, hopes in this vision, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. You start to understand who I will be, and then you can more accurately make decisions about yourself 15 minutes from now, 30 seconds from now, three years from now. Because you know you'll be on this journey more and more pure, more and more loving the things and the people that Jesus loves. You have to project yourself into the future. We have to have a vision of ourselves in the future in order to do that well, in order to make a decision today. One side of this is knowing, knowing your future self. But, this, but the side of it that's going to actually transform that future self is knowing all of God for all of you. It's an intimate relational encounter with your God. Do you know that, that where this is most important is in the area of suffering, to know, to be, project your future self? And the more intense the suffering, the more important it is, the more, the more frequently you have to ask this question. So let's say you're in a job that you really just don't like all that much. But you know if you stay for eight months, you'll get to cash in your vacation and sick leave all at once, and then you can leave or something. So you have to ask yourself, can Corby in eight months keep doing this? Can Jameson in eight months keep doing can I? Can, can Jonathan in seven months keep doing this job? Can I do it for that long? My future self, will I be able to hang with it? But if the suffering is more intense, then it gets, you have to ask it more often. Can I bear with this roommate for another month? She, she's leaving? Can I, can I deal with it? 
Can my future self not strangle her for one more month? Will I be that person in, in a month's time? Can I deal with it for that long? And the more intense the suffering, the more, the more often you have to ask that question. Can I keep doing this difficult PT, physical therapy, to keep healing this, this, this uh, unhealth in my body? It's hard. I have to do it every day. You have to ask, will my future self want to do this tomorrow? Will my future self be motivated to take care of this injury enough to keep working at it? It gets more and more, and as you can imagine, um, something that is more, uh, more difficult and intense suffering. It gets more and more. And the, and the closer that suffering is to you, the more, uh, the, the more often you have to ask that question. And so when Jesus, when Jesus who, who always had that beatific vision, who always knew the smile of his father all of his life, who always knew exactly who his future self was going to be. When he came to the garden the night before he was crucified, he was brought up short in a question. When the suffering came time, he had to ask, can Jesus in a few hours go through with this? And he asked his father, can Jesus in a few hours actually go through with this? And when... And when that vision, that beatific vision, was turned away from him, he had to ask, can, can my unguarded soul take the torments of hell for another ten minutes? Can I, in ten minutes, continue taking this? Can I, in, in five minutes, keep on seeing the back of my father when all I've ever seen was his face? Can I keep... In, in, in 30 seconds, can I, can I keep undergoing this physical torture that's coupled with this soul torture? Can I keep undergoing this death? He had to ask it again and again and again. Every five seconds, every three seconds, every second, can I do it? Again, and do you know what his answer was? Every time he asked, can Jesus in the future continue to do this right now? His answer was... The answer was your name. Calvin. Catherine. It was Brennan. It was Jonathan. It was Brenda. It was Jessica. It was Elliot. It was Hannah. Every time he asked that question, can I keep going? The joy set before him that helped him endure, the hope set before him was your completion. Your happiness. He was enduring the back of his father so that you could have this beatific vision. He was enduring the torments of hell so that you would never have to. He was enduring the punishment, the pushing away of his father that all sin deserves so that you would never be pushed away and cast out. And that is what it means to know all of God for all of you. That is where transformation comes. That is where wholeheartedness comes. That's where we get the courage to stand up to an angry king, and that's where we get the humility to listen to criticism. That is what transforms us into wholehearted, complete, and happy people. All of God for all of you. That is the beatific vision. That is what it is. Lastly, where do we get it? Where do we get this vision of our God for us? 
Where do we understand who, all of who he is for all of us in a way that would transform us this way, in a way that even the hope of that future would begin to purify us now? Three ways. The first is in Scripture. He has given us his word to communicate himself to us, and most clearly he has communicated his, the full essence of his being through Christ Jesus, who we know through his word, through Scripture. It's actually the point of reading Scripture. Did you know that? The point of sitting down in, in the morning or, or some other point in the day and reading Scripture uh, alone or reading Scripture in a small group or, or, or hearing the word preached on the Sunday gathering is that your unguarded heart would come smack up against Jesus for you. The, 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 the being of the triune God that your heart would be exposed to his beauty and his love. That is the point of opening scripture. That is the point of Sunday worship. The second place I think we get it is by encountering the image of God. This is an easy one. Who is the image of God? All of us. The pattern of scripture is that people get to know God in small groups. Did you know this? Jesus chose 12 disciples. Among those, he had three small groups. You could go on and on with this. The patriarchs, their family, but it's a small group. Moses and his two siblings, it's a small group. God encounters people most clearly in these relationships, in these intimate relationships. Um, a few of us have been uh, participating in a small group where we said, that's what I want. I want that. And so let's hang out with some other people who also want that. Mark Richmond is here. Mark and I have been in this small group uh, among some of the other men in our, in our community for this last year. And we, uh, our goal was to encounter Jesus by encountering each other, to be honest with each other, to listen to each other, to love each other. Um, to, to, to know and be known by each other. And we had planned to start in the beginning of the school year and go through the end of the school year, call it quits, decide what happens next. When we got to the end of the school year, we looked at each other and said, how can we, how can we stop this? I don't want to stop. Let's keep going. I've learned things about myself. I've learned things about my God that I never knew before because of this, because of this, this small community, because of this interaction with the image of God. So through scripture, through small and intimate groups, God's people. And finally, in service to the poor. Matthew 25 is one of my favorite passages about this. Jesus says, uh, if you remember, he's, he's, uh, he's encountering people in the last day when Jesus has returned to, to uh, proffer judgment over the earth. And he says to some, you come, enter my joy, enter my completeness, my happiness, my beauty. Enter into it because when I was thirsty, you gave me a cup of water. When I was hungry, you gave me something to drink. And he says to others, he says, and they said, what? we didn't ever see you like that, Jesus. And he says, I'll tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these, for people who couldn't do it for themselves, you did it for me. When you do something for somebody, when you help somebody who can't help themselves, you are encountering the Lord Jesus Christ, you are encountering, you are coming smack up against 
his beauty, his glory, his wonder, you're encountering your God for you. I don't know how it works. He's just so closely identified himself with his people that when we help others, we are, we are encountering Jesus. And he says, when you encounter me, you, your hearts are purified. Continually purified. You become wholehearted people, not divided in your desires. You become wholehearted people who can stand up to kings and listen to criticism. Would you encounter him? Would you hope in this vision of your God? Would you seek him in his scripture, in relationship, and in service to the material, materially poor and the poor in heart? I hope you will. Amen.